listening to Ping, a new podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, Robbie Mitchell. If you're new to our show and are wondering what this podcast is all about, each fortnight we chat with internet researchers and operators from around the world about the research they are doing and insights they've gained into the well-being of the internet. For those who've been listening, welcome back and thanks for the shares, feedback and reviews. And if you've subscribed, thanks for that too. Today's show is for the DNS lovers out there, as we chat with APNIC's Chief Scientist Jeff Houston about his recent post on the APNIC blog on the case and path to a resolverless domain name system, an oxymoron of sorts, but a concept that has the making of revolutionising the DNS, and with it, the internet. Jeff, thanks for joining us again on Ping. We're already at episode 15. Can you imagine we'd get this far? I can't. I'm like... We're on a roll. And we're sticking to our fortnightly schedule too, which we're thankful to everyone who's been involved in the show. There is no shortage of amazing stuff. Well, that's what makes it easy to meet our quota. Unto which, what amazing stuff about the internet are we talking about today, Jeff? Well, the DNS is a miracle. It's been said of a number of things in the internet, including the routing system, that If we'd known when we started down this path what we were up for, we would have run away screaming. This is horrible. We can't build this. This, no, it's a bad idea from the start. And the DNS falls into the same kind of bucket. If we'd have known what we were getting ourselves into, we wouldn't have done it. We really, really wouldn't. (laughs) So the DNS is, I think it's the biggest database we've ever built. It's certainly the most diverse. Every single URL names is in the DNS somewhere. And there are literally billions of unique names. And that's weird enough, but no one ever waits for hours for a DNS answer. You type in a URL, up comes the web page. It's blindingly fast. So somewhere, somehow, minions are working really damn hard to actually make this really snappy. Now, more than that, And just to actually complete the story of impossibility, how much do you pay for the DNS, Robbie? Nothing that I'm aware of. I think it's free. I've never paid to have my queries answered. So here's this absolute technical feat. I'm like, it's just brilliant. And it's just paid for by magic. So let's discuss this magic, Jeff. So how does it work? Let's just kind of peel off a bit of a layer and actually start down this path. Because where I want to get to is actually the path to this weird thing that's come up in recent months called resolverless DNS. And as a phrase, it's kind of, oh, yeah, the DNS without resolvers. But it's only once you kind of get three quarters of the way into the DNS that you understand that the term resolverless DNS is a blatant contradiction in terms. The DNS is resolvers. What are you talking about? You need resolvers to make the DNS work, right? That's the theory. So I want to start down this path and sort of wind it all the way back to how did the DNS get invented? What was it trying to do? And then we'll follow the weird and twisty path of a bunch of unforeseen pressures, unintended consequences, (laughs) and maybe an accident or two that slipped out of the lab that got us there. So I'm going to go back to, gee, it was my first IETF meeting I attended in person. Uh, and, and this was 1989. And I wandered into the DNS Working Group, chaired by the acknowledged father of the internet, Paul Mockapetris. 
Now, in 1989, the NSF, the National Science Foundation, had been running the NSFNet, the backbone internet for the US academic and research community, for about a year. And as well as people using it, there were people measuring it. And one of the NSF program managers, Steve Goldstein, who may even be listening to this podcast at some point, hi, Steve, if you are, sent a note over to the DNS working group observing that 20% of the internet at the time was spent pushing DNS packets around. And the order from the NSF was, stop it. <laughs> it's got to, what? Well, it's just too big an overhead. You guys are just using up too much valuable bandwidth. Stop it. Why would you stop using a free service? For a service that the NSF was paying for at the time, the answer was, well, that's just too silly. So we spent this bizarre working group trying to figure out how to stop the DNS taking up so much bandwidth. And the basic approach was, let's stop resolvers. It was a bad idea, this whole DNS protocol. What Paul Mockapetris was trying to do was just wrong in every possible way. Let's go back to what we had before. Now, oddly enough, what we had before, it's still there in most operating systems. Human DNA has traces of Neanderthals in it, around 2% or so on. And a lot of operating systems, including Linux, have traces of the dim, dark prehistory in it, including the time before the DNS, bizarrely. And there is this file called hosts.txt. And when you look at it, it's a very simple file. It's a list of names, host names, DNS names, and IP addresses. And when nothing else works, in theory, your local DNS resolver looks up hosts.txt and says, aha, the answer. So if you don't want to do the DNS with resolvers, you can go back to doing hosts.txt, can't you? Now, even in 1989, it was a pretty big internet. And so what we were discussing in a working group, seriously discussing, which, you know, in retrospect is pretty weird, how cheap it would be to every week press out about 10,000 CDs. And on these CDs, remember CDs? We would put a copy of host.txt and mail it out. Yes, the US Postal Service, mail out this CD to every single computer that that ran a DNS service and the problem would be solved. The NSF would be given back 20% of its bandwidth. We'd shut down all the resolvers and the internet would be safe. Surely he was joking. (laughs) I must admit, it did take me a little bit of time to understand because I was very new to it, that this is an impossible ask. I'm just going to spend an hour breezing around with silly concepts because it ain't going to happen ever. Okay, so the DNS is wedded to the idea of resolvers. Can you explain why this is, Jeff, for those of us not privy to the inner workings of the DNS? I'll try and sort of verbally explain the model here of what happens because there are three types of resolvers that assist you in answering DNS questions. I'm an application running on my mobile phone, whatever. And I want to go to www.apnic.net. Problem is, I haven't been there before, and I don't know its IP address. And I can't just put a domain name in IP packets. The underlying forwarding system needs an IP address. So I need to translate that name, www.apnic.net, to an IP address. Now, host.txt doesn't exist anymore. Sad news. The CD stopped coming. (laughs) So instead, I have this little helper routine sitting inside the operating system on my machine. And my application does 
a call. It's a very simple call. It's called Get Host by Name normally. What's the IP address of www.apnic.net? And that invokes a resolver, a sort of a little library of functions on my machine. And it's been given the task, resolve www.apnic.net. Now, the issue is my application doesn't know the address. And interestingly enough, if my stub resolver has never been asked this before either, it has no idea. But when my machine booted, when it connected to a network, the network, my ISP normally, had given it a few things. It had given it some IP addresses. Thank you very much, ISP. But it also given it the IP addresses of recursive resolvers, usually two, that the ISP runs. Now, these resolvers are brilliant because my stub resolver can send it a question, what's the IP address of www.apnic.net? And it will wait, not too long normally, and back will come an answer. 1.2.3.4, whatever. Brilliant. Now, how did my ISP, its recursive resolvers, know that? And the answer is, well, it didn't. What do you mean by that, Jeff? The recursive resolver is the workhorse. What it has to do is to find the machine that has the answer. Let's break this down a bit because it's important. Dub, 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 dot. Remember that dot. Apinic dot net. And what we never say, but it's implied, is a final dot. So over on the rightmost, the last name I just said, net dot, that's the top level domain. And when a recursive resolver kind of comes into existence and starts to contemplate its navel or whatever it likes to do, the first thing it does is it asks the root servers, because that's been statically configured, hey, refresh me, who are the servers who know all the top level domains? And back comes an answer. Now, the recursive resolver has a cache, a, a sort of a stored memory, and it remembers this. So it now knows who can answer questions about the root zone. So when I'm asked after www.apnet.net, it finds a root server address, it just picks one. I'd say at random, but it's not like that. It tries to keep track of who's closest. So it picks what it generally thinks is the fastest one and goes, hey, root server, www.apnic.net. Now, the root server doesn't know about APNIC. Sad to say, we're not that important. But it does know .NET. It does know who serves .NET. So it sends back what it calls a referral. And it says, look, no point asking me. I'm ignorant. But you're asking about www.apnic.net. You probably should ask one of these servers, list some servers, who are authoritative for .NET. Aha says your recursive resolver. I'm just hip now. I'm going to ask one of them. So it asks one of these servers for .NET, some gtld-server.net, you know, an IP address, because that's all provided from the root. And it says, hey, .NET server, where can I get an answer for www.apnic.net? And the .NET server says, no point asking me, I don't know. But in my zone file is a delegation to a thing called apnic.net. And here are the servers. Ooh, getting warm. So my recursive resolver then asks a third question to the server who knows about apnic.net. It says, hey, apnic.net server, what's the IP address of dub, dub, dub? And an answer came there for. Now, if you think about this, we've sent in one question to this recursive resolver and it had to do three questions to find an answer. And 
if that was the way the DNS worked, we don't live that long. Continents drift faster in geology. This is slow. But as I said before, there are caches that when a recursive resolver gets an answer, it remembers. It never asks the same question twice if it doesn't have to. So if you're not the first person to ask about .NET, the recursive resolver is simply going to use the cached answer. So it's probably not going to ask who are the service to .NET. It probably knew. It's a big domain. It might have almost known about APNIC as well. And it might have even known about www.apnic. So if someone's been there before me in the last day or so, or whatever the time to live is in the cache, it will go, look, no problem. Here's the answer. And that's the way the DNS is fast. The resolvers, which are key to this, the resolvers store the information and reuse it as much as possible. So caching makes everything sing and dance. And so that's one of the reasons why the DNS is a miracle, because caches are miraculous. Okay. So as you've illustrated, resolvers are super important to the magic of the DNS. So how is it that no one pays for this magic? As many folk have said, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Somebody has to pay. I pay money to my ISP, my internet service provider. And the deal is my internet service provider looks after my packets, thank you very much, and looks after my DNS queries, thank you very, very much. And so my ISP is on the hook because it's taking my money to actually run one of these recursive resolvers. That's how most of this kind of works implicitly that almost everyone, by almost about three-quarters of the world users, use their ISP-provided recursive resolver, and this is all wonderful. You said three-quarters. So what about the other quarter? What are they using? Oh, well, let's talk about this. Did you select your ISP because of the quality of its DNS resolver? You're shaking your head going, no, Robbie. (laughs) No, it was a matter of price and speed. You and the billion or so other users out there, we didn't check, we didn't look. And oddly enough, we never look. So even if the ISP is running a DNS resolver on an old Pentium 386 that's capable of one query per second, you'd still try and use it. We don't select ISPs because of the quality of their DNS. It's not a differentiator. So think about it from the ISP perspective. The more money I spend on a whiz-bang, crash-hot DNS resolver... Kudos to you, but 99.99% of your users will hardly know the difference or praise you for it. I've never yet seen an ad campaign for an ISP that goes, our DNS is better than theirs, buy from us, (laughs) right? How do you measure it anyway? So in some ways, it's not a differentiator. And so the ISP does the obvious thing that the ISPs always do. It's a cost center, not a revenue center. So they stop investing. And so a huge amount of crafty old DNS sitting at the bottom of a rack, gathering dust, and occasionally being kicked as you move other servers in and out of the rack is the typical story of ISP-based DNS servers because it's not central to differentiation out there in in the competitive market. Is this where public DNS services have tried to solve such a problem? Well, that was a problem that that these open DNS resolvers tried to sort of say, you know, it can be better. And rather than trying to persuade ISPs to make it better, example is a very good thing. And so a number of folk sort of entered into this area going, you know, let me show you how to build a good DNS. 
there was another reason. And it was one of these stories about there's naughty stuff out there on the internet. Shock horror. Criminally naughty stuff. And then came the thought, our users shouldn't be going there, says governments and regulators. We need to stop them. Now, you might try and say, well, everyone has a unique IP address, so we'll just block the block IP address. We'll do it in the routing system. Australia tried that and then had a harsh lesson in the fact that everyone shares IP addresses. There are big web servers out there on one IP address that have tens of thousands of separate content sitting on the that one IP address. So that doesn't work. So they went the other side. Let's just make ISPs block DNS names. So the DNS becomes a control point. Now, in some ways it's logical, but at the back of the internet is still, you know, the 1970s West Coast libertarian view of the internet as information wants to be free. The hippies still live. And so this was an affront to civilization as we know it. How dare you block the DNS was some of the reaction. And in some ways, some folks thought, well, it protects us, but other folk thought it's authoritarian folk imposing a point of view on users that we reject. We want an alternate way of seeing our favorite website. And of course, the intellectual property ape folk glommed onto this and tried to get DNS resolvers to block sites that send out lists of ways to download movies and so on in a relatively unauthorized fashion. So open DNS resolvers said, look, we won't do that kind of nonsense. A name's a name. We have no we have no qualms. So that was the next reason. And a third reason, which I'm not sure is real or not, but certainly out there. Everything you do starts with a call to the DNS. Now, if you looked at my DNS queries over the last hour, I can hide nothing from you. Everything I did is in my DNS query logs. Everything. Who's privy to that secret? I assume it's a secret, but it's not. Because my ISP got them all because my stub resolver faithfully sent them the queries. So my ISP knows an awful lot. Who else gets to see that data? Governments, if they demand it. Come along and bash down the door with a subpoena or a warrant. Yep, absolutely. There are ways to get this data. How do I make sure they can't? Well, my ISP is powerless. It's sitting inside a regime. There are rules. There are laws. They can't say to the law, no, I'm sorry, our private contract forbids us for executing this legal warrant. You know, right, try that out in court. So the open DNS resolvers are actually a little bit above that in some ways. And there was a really good case in point. So we have a bit of time. Let me digress for a second to the poor old case of Quad9 and the Hamburg court. Quad9 is an open DNS resolver domiciled in Europe. Switzerland, I believe. And there's this site in the in, somewhere in Eastern Europe that happily serves BitTorrent movies, which, you know, is contrary to a whole bunch of laws. And so a German court said, Dear Quad9, you should not be resolving the domain names for Flugelblad, blockchain, movie theft, blah, blah, blah. Stop it for German users. And the court said, Very good. We'll uphold that. Quad9, get into gear. Do the right thing. Don't let German users do this. So Quad9 went, oh, God, the law's the law. Yes, for German users, we're going to have to do this. Parenthetically, I'm sure the question's asked, why isn't Google in court with me and all the other folk who run open DNS resolvers? 
And the answer was, they're not domiciled in Europe. They didn't sign the same international treaty as Germany did and Switzerland, and the law applies to you, mate, but not necessarily those others. So open DNS resolvers, for that kind of quirk of international law, sometimes operate outside the law. And don't forget, they've signed no contract. Hi, Google, I need to use your service. Yes, Jeff, here's a 50-page contract. Agree. No one does. There is none. There's no agreement. Nothing. So for those three reasons, open resolvers gathered strength. But then comes, I suppose, the next question. Why did Google enter this? If you're old enough, you might have used a browser in, quote, the early days. And a browser in the early days sort of looked like a browser today, except for one thing. There are two input fields. Type your URLs in box one. Type your search terms in box two. Now, to a tech, this was really obvious. URLs go in box one. Any other random text goes into box two. For everyone else, it's sort of DNS names, URLs. What are you talking about? I type stuff in a box and things happen. Why are there two boxes? Very confusing. Very confusing. And so at some point, the browser folk went, aha, we need to do some UI engineering. We're just going to have one box, one super input box, and type whatever you feel like typing in. And we're smart. If it looks like a URL, the domain name and some other bits and stuff, we'll send it off. We'll treat it as a main name and resolve it and behave as normal. Anything else we'll regard as a search term, and we'll send it off to our favourite search engine, right? Now, good, you'd think. This is brilliant. But there was a huge amount of leakage because that super engine in the browser wasn't that clever. And so DNS servers were getting search terms fed at them and search engines were getting DNS names fed at them, or at least URLs. And this then led to a thought, and it was a very cunning thought, and many ISPs had it. Users don't pay extra to use the DNS. So the DNS is indeed a cost center. How can I make money out of the DNS? Well, you could invent new answers, but that's kind of against the spirit of the DNS. Everyone else has got this IP address, but I'm giving you a special one because someone else has paid me 10 cents to deliver this special answer just to you, right? That's not a business model that's going to work, except in one case. What if the answer is that name doesn't exist? Whoa. So I'm not redirecting from a valid. I'm redirecting from the dawning chasm of DNS names that don't exist. What if I substitute in there the IP address of a search engine? And what if the search engine pays me a referral fee? Even a fraction of a cent would be a lot of money at the end of the day for a big ISP. Whoa, dollar signs, flash, flash, flash. What are you doing? Well, at one level up, you're actually implicitly turning the DNS into a search engine because all the names that don't exist actually become search engine tips because on your browser goes, I see you were looking for Flurgle blots. Maybe you should buy Flurgle Blazers and some other search engine result. And this is great for everyone except Google. Now, Google's really dominant in search. More than 90% of folk being, being hardly made a dent in Google's numbers. It's big. And so when some other person puts their fingernail on Google's property, hey, you're talking search, that's ours, you've awoken the beast, and the beast is angry. 
Because advertising revenue is based on search and advertising revenue is Google revenue. That's all there is. And so if you touch search, you touch Google. And this whole idea that the DNS was going to become the new search engine, Google were horrified. Got to stop this. But how? Via their browser? Yes, they have a browser. It's called Chrome. But you can't do it at the browser level. So Google did, I think, the one response, which was actually incredibly clever. Hats off to them. We're going to lead by example. We're going to build an open resolver that's better than any other resolver out there, even your ISPs. Lightning fast. Going to have points of presence everywhere. It's going to use the entire Google infrastructure, and it's never, ever going to lie. If there's no such domain, we will tell you. That's the truth. If there's even a law against using it, no, we will tell you what's in the DNS because that's the truth. What you do with it is your problem, not Google's problem. So this DNS service was big. How could they do it? Well, anyone else who ran an open resolver did so with voluntary effort. They were just nice people and they always ran into success disasters. Because if 10 more people started using it tomorrow, they had to find some more money to build some more machinery or the service would get worse and worse, yeah? So you're in this success disaster mode. Your business plan doesn't match the good work you're doing. But in Google's case, what was funding the Google DNS engine was everyone using Google search because this was kind of a risk of avoidance strategy. Stop the DNS becoming a search engine. Yay. Spend as much money as necessary. Why not? Why do I do that? Because if we don't, our search business is going to be in desperate straits. So act now, stop the rot. So they did. And up comes a massively big DNS service, an open resolver. 25% of the world's users have Google somewhere in their lists. No marketing, no ad campaign. Oh, apart from one in Turkey, and Google actually didn't do it anyway. In response to some pretty severe filtering going on in the country, there was graffiti going, just send your browser to 8.8.8.8 and it'll all work, which was true at the time for a short period of time. But yeah, 25%. That's quite an achievement, Jeff, because users need to actually configure their routers and devices to use Google's service because they are hard-coded to use their ISP's DNS service. So for 25% of internet users to be able to go into their router and device settings and change it to 8.8.8.8 is a massive achievement. So true, so true. You kind of think if 25% is as good as it'll ever get. Because I don't know about you, but I find changing the defaults on my smartphone, I find even turning it off and on sometimes a challenge. No one touches it. So yeah, this is an incredible achievement. Interesting. So Google has a business case to be the best DNS resolver on on the planet. And, you know, they spent a lot of money and it's a great service. Hats off to them. And they've made a whole bunch of undertakings that they really, really don't keep the data. So whoever turns up at the door with a warrant, the answer is fine, search away. There's nothing here. We don't retain stuff. There's no logs, nothing. So In some ways, it's one of the better ones and works to an ethos that actually is a respecter of personal privacy, bizarrely. Bizarre because Google's business is surveillance, but they don't use the DNS to do it. So, okay, let's go back a bit to where we are. An awful lot of people are now using open resolvers, aren't they? They're not in the ISP. You have to traverse the internet to get to them. Mm Mm-hmm. Traverse the internet. That's a secure place. 
I'm like, it starts with your Wi-Fi and just gets worse, right? Yep. Particularly the DNS, which is not the most secure of protocols because it wasn't designed to be, was it? Rather, it's been bolted on ad hoc. Well, this is where we're getting to about trying to add security to DNS because it's an open protocol. You don't know who you're talking to. You don't know who answers you. You don't know where your queries go and you have no idea why you get answers. Everyone abuses the DNS because once you start these packets traversing the internet, they're fair game. Now, we were prepared to say, oh, well, it's a problem. Join the list of problems. You know, it's number 52. Keep going down. There are many problems at the internet until the Snowden papers. Because the Snowden papers kind of observed that a couple of US agencies had become addicted to looking at the DNS because it is a real-time trace of everything. Activity, DNS, one-to-one. And the Internet Engineering Task Force, the dear old IETF, got most insulted that their cherished protocols were being abused in this way. How dare you? And so we have encryption. We have the technology. We're going to make the DNS more secure. We're going to make this better. And rather than being, oh, yeah, we'll get to it one day, um, the IETF decided to make this one of the really big protocol efforts uh, around about five, 10 years ago. And so we looked at what we were doing in the web, HTTPS, and said, let's do this for the DNS. Let's make the DNS work over the same channel. Now, the channel used to be called Secure Socket Layer, now called TLS, Transport Layer Security. Let's run the DNS over TLS. Yeah, great. But running the DNS over an encrypted protocol takes a lot of effort, right? So it's not without cost. But it's a matter of offsetting the fact that now, when I send out a query over DNS over TLS, I know who I'm talking to. Anyone else couldn't answer the handshake. So when I send a message to Google, dns.google.com, I know I'm talking to dns.google.com. I know where the answer came from. That's brilliant. And because it's an encrypted session, it's a secret to everyone else. My ISP can try and look. Anyone can try and look. There's a session key wandering around, and it would take them a huge amount of time, unless they've got some super secret quantum computer they're not telling us about, a huge amount of time in all other circumstances to actually figure out what I'm doing. So it's a secret I share with Google, which sounds like a contradiction in terms, but that's where we are. And that was kind of cool. But once we'd let this cat out of the bag, a set of other kind of responses happened. And and one of them was that Google had, for other reasons, invented a protocol called Quick, which equally is an encrypted session. But with TLS, this is encryption over TCP, and the TCP parameters are in the clear. Quick is a very cunning way of encrypting even the TCP parameters. So what comes out is just raw UDP and everything else is encrypted, everything. It also supports multiple sessions, so you can thread a number of things inside the one logical session. So Quick is pretty cool, pretty sexy. So both of these look super viable, right? They stop onlookers, you know who you're talking to. This is excellent. No one else can see you. And because we're talking stub to recursive resolver, you don't just make a connection for every query and tear it down. Again, you'd be there for years. You make a connection and you leave it open. Won't that consume packets? Not on a packet switch network. I keep the session state, you keep the session state. 
and we just send packets occasionally. And if I do another little trick, like TCP fast open, we store a state. As long as you keep it stored, I can send you a, hi, I'm going to resume this session, and here's the first question. So I can take all that overhead and smear it across a million queries, and it's no worse than UDP. Fantastic. But we didn't stop there. <laughs> we went to DNS over HTTPS. That's the HTTP protocol over TLS or over Quick, depending on whether you're using HTTP2 or HTTP3. So it's just a tiny bit of packaging that puts some HTTP wrapper around the DNS query and answer. You think, well, that's completely stupid. Why would you ever think that that's a step forward? Uh, Paul Vixie said in, in one of his presentations a couple of years back, DNS over HTTPS is a political solution to a political problem. If you really wanted to hide yourself, go use a VPN. Putting the DNS queries over HTTP EPS does nothing. I might, you might as well do DNS over TLS or, or quick, you know. HTTPS adds nothing, says Vixie. And, and in some ways he's right, but in other ways he's not. So the first thing about DNS over HTTPS is it looks like the web. It's over port 443. Even quick uses UDP port 443. So you've got to do a fair amount of traffic analysis to figure out there was DNS there. It's buried deeply down. It's camouflage. But, you know, when your adversary is a computer, camouflage takes on a new meaning. So I would actually say it's not very good camouflage. You're using green paint rather than bright red paint. Yeah, okay. You know, you can still spot things. But there's one other thing inside the HTTP protocol of late, and that's a thing called server push. These days, you know, almost every web page comes with a style sheet and a whole bunch of images. And when I send you the original page, I know you're going to ask for the style sheet. I know you're going to ask for these images. I know. Why should I wait? Just push it. You're right. Just push it. And so in HTTP2, there was a preemptive, look, you're going to ask for this. So look, I'm a nice person. Have the style sheet. Have these images have all this other stuff because I've got some idle bandwidth and I know you're going to ask for it. So life will be faster. Now, it's not a one-sided favour because if I'm an application writer, I am after every millisecond I can scrounge. I want it to be snappier than my competitors. I want this to be in your face blindingly fast. And so it's in my interests to push as much as I can at you so that when you need it, it's just there. It's not even an option. You got it. So server push is making it good for you, the client. No, making it good for me. We're all happy. So when HTTP3 comes along, server push is there. So server push pushes HTTP objects. Quick revision question. Were you paying attention? What is the DNS over HTTPS? It's an object, a HTTP object. Yay! So I can push it. So here's a web page and it's got some style sheets and some URLs and I'm going to push them. And by the way, inside those URLs are a few DNS queries. Look, I'm a nice person. I'm just trying to make life faster for you. Here's the answer to those DNS questions because I'm just trying to make life better. No resolvers. You didn't ask. No delays. Nothing. No leaking of metadata. 
I'm just giving you the answer. I'm going straight to the chase. Sounds brilliant, Jeff. But what's stopping a site pushing the DNS answer of another site? The answer is, whoa, maybe this is a really bad idea. Maybe Paul Vixie was right. Maybe this whole, well, DNS over HTTPS solves a problem. It's kind of, I don't want that problem solved. If you're making it fast, but you're not making it better, you're actually making it worse. Bad fast, and that's a bad combination. So can we use DNSSEC in this case? And why haven't we implemented it yet? Yep, absolutely. Because in DNSSEC, here's this digital signature attached to a DNS answer. And the DNS signature has a sort of a magic property that if you can validate it, if you can create a thread of interlocking bits of crypto, which are really hard to fake, takes you zillions of years, leading all the way up to a bit of information you have, which is the, the public key of the root zone, that key signing key. If I can create an interlocking set of signatures for the piece of data I've just given you, then when you unravel that and actually validate the answer, you know a few things that are really amazingly good. It's genuine. No one's lying. If I could create a digitally signed thing about google.com and it validates, it's the truth. There are dates inside those signatures. If I'm outside the date range, don't believe it. So I know it's current. And lastly, it's complete. I'm not withholding anything. This is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So if I can somehow send you both an unsolicited answer to a question that I think you might ask, and I send you, send you, because we're trying to avoid using resolvers, all of those other bits of DNS information that allow you to validate that answer, then all of a sudden, this looks pretty rock solid. Because with DNSSEC, it doesn't matter who told you it. It only matters that you can validate it. Happily, some clever folk in the IETF have been there before you <laughs> and asked this very question. How can I make this validation process faster? And there is a little quoted, little used, and currently unimplemented RFC. Yes, there are a lot of unimplemented RFCs. And this one, 7901, says, you know, for validation, I know what questions you're going to ask. I know the series of questions that builds the chain of interlocking crypto all the way back to the root. Um, I could recite them, but no one has the patience here. <laughs> So why don't I just send you a collection of answers? I send you all of the information you need as a chained response and whack it in as an adjunct to the answer I originally gave you. Now, interestingly, this is starting to look a lot like TLS. When you do a TLS handshake, it just sends you all the crypto you need to validate you know, the certificate that you're being presented with. With DNSSEC chained response, the DNS is sending you all that answer. Now, why haven't we implemented this? Well, a couple of reasons, but one of the big things is these chained responses can get super massive. And if we're talking DNS over UDP and you're talking super massive answers, life gets pretty bad pretty quickly. We've got to fragment the answer if we're stupid enough to use UDP. Well, that doesn't work too well. It certainly doesn't work over V6. Oh, well, I'll truncate it and send it over TCP. Yes, but truncating it and restarting TCP is two more round trips. That's time. So good idea, but there's a budget that no one's willing to pay. But we haven't got a time budget in this model of push. 
I'm giving you the answers. There's no time delay. I'm actually anticipating what you're going to do. So I can send you an entire PhD thesis while you're busy, you know, assembling what you're going to do next. And no one's any the wiser, you know. I can provision you with this chain response stuff and you're a happy person. As a server, I'm now giving you a truth that you can validate. Now, oddly enough, this is a step up for DNSSEC because in this wonderful world of DNS over UDP, how many stub resolvers go through the hard miles of validating? Zero? Yeah, none. Takes too long. No one's willing to spend the time. It's just too crazy for words. So oddly enough, all the work in DNSSEC so far is wasted effort. Because if I can attack the recursive to stub path, meh, you're toast. Everyone is toast. If I can secure that, then all of a sudden this looks pretty damn viable. I've got rid of the time penalty. I've got rid of the interception and meddling risks. I've got rid of the security leaks. Wow. Oh, and by the way, when the server pre-assembles all this information, my identity as a client isn't there. I'm not generating any metadata in the DNS. I don't care how the server assembled all that information. That's the server's problem. As a client, I've disappeared. Wow. So this gives DNSSEC, finally, a reason for existence. The killer app, you might say. Well, it is, I think, an astonishingly powerful case because it panders to the one thing that is totally relevant and present in our world today. We're spending obscene amounts of money to make the internet go faster. All those content distribution networks that park content and service within a few milliseconds of everybody on the planet, this is their dream, doesn't come for free. Google is the person building all these submarine cables. And Azure and you know all the rest of the content distribution networks, they're spending the money to make the internet go faster because they truly believe in the billion-dollar millisecond. And yet, like this sort of nail in your shoe, this grit of sand that constantly irritates you, the DNS is intractably bad. You can't make the DNS as a resolver system go faster. And you know how we said in the ISP world, no one pays for queries? It's actually worse. No one pays for the DNS. And so the infrastructure of the internet is now a toxic wasteland of zero margin. No one's incented to make it go better. But it's the internet. People are getting rich. Let's qualify that a little bit. The content folk are in boom city. You know, this whole issue of streaming and content, that's making money hand over fist. If you look at who's who in the top 10 public companies of this world, you actually find Azure, you find Microsoft, you find Amazon, you find Google, you find content. Where's AT&T? Well, I don't know. Cisco? Well, somewhere. Mumble, mumble. All the money's moved up to applications. Applications are the folk that want this to go faster, and they have money. And oddly enough, resolverless DNS gives them the power to fix their problem and no one else's. And in doing so, it cuts out the ISPs who aren't willing to invest in a service they don't get any customer recognition for, given it's supposed to be a free service. 
Correct. They're not forklifting everyone else. They're not giving everyone else a free ride. They're not saying to ISPs, oh, you've got a really crappy DNS. Uh, tell you what, here's some money to make it go faster. What? You mean to say if I build a crappy DNS, Google's going to pay me money? Yahoo! You know, that's perverse incentives for horribleness. So oddly enough, this is this happy coincidence of the new economic realities of the internet, that everything's moving up into application. And a solution space where you're trying to make the application level do the heavy lifting of the DNS and completely eliminate time penalties, privacy penalties, metadata penalties. They sort of go, what's wrong with that? Well, Paul Vixie doesn't like it. But aside from that, you know, what's wrong with that? And I'm sort of sitting there going, I'm not sure I understand what's wrong with that. Now, there are a few caveats. A server would be a fool to push unsigned DNS data. You know, don't bother. You're not doing anyone a favor. And a client would be a fool to accept server-pushed, you know, unsigned DNS data. That's just the path to hell on a freeway. There's no good answers. But if you're signed, wow, all of a sudden DNSSEC is viable, validation is viable, the whole kit is viable, and the client is doing the validation, not the recursive resolver. The right people are doing the right job. Again, what a happy coincidence of the right outcome. So it's a long path to where we are, and we're not there yet. The resolverless DNS is a bad thing is still a pretty common mantra in some DNS circles. But I think it's being tarred with a very unfair brush. I think it's the gut reaction of, you really haven't thought this through, because if we combine that with DNSSEC, this would be a whole lot better, a whole lot better than where we are today because we can make a whole bunch of things that are irking us where we're saying to the DNS world, hey, spend money, make it better. And the DNS world's going, money, money, what's money? I haven't got any. Make it better without money. Yeah, right. Whereas this way, it's kind of saying to the application level, look, there's a way to drive around these problems. You can fix your own problems and provide incentives to sign domain names in the process. Let's do this. Oh, but the resolvers will melt. Well, oddly enough, you're relieving resolver load. The more the server pushes, the more you're actually offloading stuff into a much lower intensity. So this stuff starts to look astonishingly interesting. It looks like an evolutionary path forward. And if that's not enough to excite everyone, well, all I can say is it excites me. You know, I'm just there. I want it tomorrow. I want it today, damn it. That's an interesting word you use, evolutionary. This might be a topic for a future podcast, but is this another step towards your famous catch cry of a death of transit and making IP redundant even? Well, I'm sure there are many places in marketing where the mantra is the most effective form of marketing is to anticipate every need before it's even known. And, you know, my local supermarket practices that every day of the week. And and part of it is, you know, in some ways, if, if the job of a network, an IP, is to deliver gratification after I've thought about it, a better job is to deliver gratification before the thought, to eliminate the delays in networking, the compromises in reacting to responses, and actually making the network anticipatory. You kind of go, but that's crazy. But we have done so much in the past 20 years. Supercomputers are now so cheap. A fraction of my finger. We produce billions of these things from the factories. 
you know, my car has 150 microprocessors. You're going to go, well, that's taken an awful lot of compute power. That's our job. That's what we build. We'll take a lot of memory. Well, again, that's our job. That's what we build. Have you thought about the bandwidth? We're building terabit cable systems. You know, this is insane. We're practicing abundance like we've never believed. And you're telling me, oh, no, we don't like abundance. I'm sorry, but we can anticipate if we had the capacity. And oddly enough, that's getting easy. We have the capacity. So, yeah, what's this networking stuff anyway? Is that some throwback to, you know, the 2020s when we thought we needed to react to people? Hell, we just anticipate these days and no one even sees there's a network at work because it happens before the thought, not after. Gee, that's scary. Cognitive networking doesn't seem to be far a step from automation, but let's leave that for another show. Jeff, this has been really enlightening. Like we said at the start, not many people know of the DNS, myself included, until I started working for APNIC. But as I've come to appreciate, as you probably did when you wandered into that IETF DNS working group all those years ago, it is truly a foundation of the internet that deserves the praise you and other proponents regularly give it, particularly given that it's a free service. Yeah, if we compile the eight wonders of the modern world at some point in the vague future, I'd be awestruck if the DNS wasn't a prime member of that. Like I said, when you thought about it at the start, you'd never have built it. It just seemed so weird. But now that we've built it and we keep on evolving, it's kind of, wow, this stuff is better than we ever conceived. It's amazing. And that's just so cool. It's not funny. So it's been a pleasure to talk about it, Robbie. Absolutely. I'm sure many of our listeners would agree. To which, thanks to everyone who's made it this far. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If so, please subscribe, write a review and tell your colleagues about it. If you'd like to learn more about this subject, do check out Jeff's post on the APNIC blog. We'll put a link to it in the description. Finally, if you've got a story or research to share, get in contact by email at apnic.net or our apnic social media channels and be sure to check out the apnic website for all your resource and community needs until next time